Welcome to the Exec MBA Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Twitty, and you are listening to a new episode. On this episode of the podcast, I'm excited to share my recent conversation with Michael Thorne Beglin. Michael is a first-year student in our Executive MBA class of 2024, and he and I recently connected to talk more about his background, how he decided to pursue an MBA, what led him to Darden, how his first year is going as an Executive MBA student, and so much more. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, here's my interview with Michael Thorne Beglin. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Brett. Well, it's great to be with you. It's great to see you here. Feels like just the other day I saw you here in Roslyn for a weekend residency. How much fun was it being with your class? I, I love I love those weekend residencies just because you get to see everybody, such great energy. Uh, we had some visitors come through, which is always fun. And we weren't able to do that for, I uh, guess, almost a couple of years. And so it's nice to have that back in the fold, too. Yeah, no, agreed, agreed. Uh, uh the uh my only concern again it was finance and accounting so you definitely threw them in uh but uh i think they they, they definitely got a uh a good view of uh of what was ahead they were great discussions it was fun and it's always great seeing you how does it feel to be in quarter three of the program impossible it doesn't feel possible i mean it's it is uh you know there's this dynamic with kids where all of a sudden just you're at a different time right things just change it goes so quickly there's this all there's, there's this business school thing with time as well it does not seem possible it was like yesterday you and i were literally having our first discussion that was eight months ago uh so it seems impossible it feels great um you know and and, and you know it, it, it's sort of you keep you know pitching yourself and making sure you're getting the most out of it because there's just so much to get out of it uh and, and you realize like wait if a third of this is already gone and I have two thirds ahead of me. What do I want to adjust or change to make sure that you know I'm getting the most from from this? I really appreciate that point. We get this question all the time from prospective students: What makes a successful Darden student? Those students who've really thrived in the program. And in a lot of ways, it's the people who are asking the questions that you just asked. You know, what have I gotten out of the program thus far? What do I want to continue to get out of the program? How do I adjust? This sort of, you know, this is this is it. This is my MBA experience, and I want to maximize it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, let's start kind of with the same first question we always start with these podcast conversations. Tell us more about you. Who are you and what's your background? All right. Um, well, so where to begin? Like I'm I'm um I may be older than some of the listeners. You know, I'm I'm 53. Um, so you know, there's 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 plenty to talk about. I, you know, I, I grew up as an army brat. So I, when people ask where I'm from, I always struggle with that. Uh I ended up going to high school and college here in, in Virginia. So I consider myself a Virginian. And, uh, you know, about almost 30 years ago, came down to Richmond, kind of followed my husband down here. He knew he wanted to go to law school. I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. So I sort of tagged along with him, went to law school. I loved it. And uh, uh, so came out of that, went to uh, work at a big law firm and uh and loved that too and it, it just I never in a million years thought i would do law you know my mom had been uh a secretary at florida legal aid years ago when we lived there and she she has had such a great experience because she saw these lawyers and thought man like what a great thing for someone to be uh so we talked a lot about that at dinner table and i think that in part was sort of what got me there but uh I'm not I'm not exactly the lawyer that, you know, we're doing the law work that I think my mom had been exposed to. But, uh, you know, my brother and I actually both ended up as lawyers. And um, so, yeah, so, you know, so spent, you know, maybe six years as a lawyer at a big firm, 
was having kids and they were twins and, and you know, with twins that like, you know, it's going to be some work. So, uh, so I, I knew I couldn't keep up the big firm pace that I was doing and kind of be the parent I wanted. So I actually went in house, um, with Altria down here and, uh, spent a bunch of time as a lawyer. And then five years ago became our first chief transformation officer and chief inclusion diversity equity officer. So kind of flipped from being this really, you know, lawyer on this obscure work to kind of leading our cultural transformation and our DEI work. Uh, and that's sort of, you know, what I do today. Um, you know, so again, the proud parent of now the, again, like I mentioned kid time. Oh my gosh, they're like 18. So they are looking at school. My daughter's going to William and Mary, my alma mater, and I'm trying to get my son at UVA. So fingers crossed, we will see what happens. Um, but yeah, my husband's now a judge here in town and, you know, Richmond has become home. It's like impossible for us to imagine ever being anywhere else. Um, but yeah, so that's like, that's a lot, but that's kind of a, a snapshot of the past 50 years. That is a lot and an incredible twists and turns as you go along there. Talk to us about that change you made recently at Altria, right? You were a lawyer and now you're doing uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion work. How did you make that that transition? Yeah, um, like I just I was a big loudmouth. I, I mean, I just you know it's it's look it was or a different way to say it, it was attempted career suicide that didn't go well. Um, you know, it was, you know, while I was doing the law work at the company, I picked up the side hustle. Uh, we called them employee resource groups, but, you know, where I, I stood up an employee resource group and with that sort of got a seat at the table and one, you know, senior executive meeting was at that table and they asked me what I thought. And I gave them a very honest answer, which no one wanted to hear. And, uh, you know, it was, and it's largely like most companies, you know, we just wanted to tout ourselves on how great we were doing and all of our successes. And I just was having none of it. and was like, not a single one of these is success. We are not living up to what we've said. And this work's too important for us to pay at lip service. So again, I mean, it's, it is as close to career suicide as you can come. And, uh, and the only reason I survived it was our, our chief operating officer at the time was sort of one of the 20 executives that was in the room at the time that was open to what I had to say and just asked me to help educate him and I kind of became a mentor to him on things like DEI, on culture, on leadership. And then he became our CEO and said, hey, I want you to do for the company what you did for me. And he made me a chief transformation officer, whatever that means, uh, reporting to him to lead the transformation of our company. Wow, that's an incre incredible story. So one person in the room took you up on it, said, hey, you know, I'd like to learn more. And next thing you know, here you, here you are. Yeah. Um, yeah. Look, I, you know, I, I, I always struggle because it's like, you know, I recommend it speak to truth to power. You just, you know, it comes with, it comes at a cost and you just have to be willing to pay the cost. What, um, how did you take that leap? How'd you say, you know what, I'm going to say this. I'm just going to say this. Yeah. I think it was, it, look, I think it was a couple of things. Um, I think it was a couple of things. Uh, you know, I grew up with a dad who, while, although he was military, uh, always, always emphasized the need to speak truth to power. And I think part of it was because, you know, he had been a platoon leader in Vietnam and I think was in some ways the casualty of how poorly the armed forces had trained forces at the time that they deployed. And, 
you know, and from his standpoint, it was because people hadn't spoke truth to power about what needed to be done. And so while he stayed in the military and actually spent most of his career then retooling how the military trained and deployed forces, it was all predicated on the need for there to be honest conversations around what was going well, what wasn't. So I grew up in a household where a dad that really emphasized that. The Harvard uh, Business Review article had come out that had pointed to the fact that white men were the one employee cohort that could speak about these issues at a company and not be penalized. Any other group, women of color, um, you know, anyone else that would name these issues uh, would always pay a penalty. And so in some ways, I felt like as a white guy, I'm the one person that can do this and pay the least penalty just based on sort of what the research had showed. Um, and just and really, and, and believing that this work is too important for companies to continue to underdeliver. You know, I mean, we are at a pivotal moment like many companies. And we talked about how our people and our culture were the key to it. And I believe that. I do believe that the only way we're going to be successful is if we actually get there. And we were just so painfully off course that um, it's like when I see it's like, am I the only one that sees how painfully we're off course? And the answer is no, but I was the one willing to say it. And again, I think sometimes like many of us have been in similar situations, maybe not that exact dynamic, but I just think that once you say it, it confirms what other people are thinking and then you begin to have that conversation. So how did you decide that you wanted to pursue an MBA? Yeah, well, that's a good question. Um, and you know, and you are, and you, and you know, you're a part of that story. Uh, it was so I, years ago, probably three years ago, uh, was looking at some of these different um, executive ed, ed, education programs. Darden has a phenomenal program that I had looked at and actually registered, I'll call it finance for dummies. It's one of these like, you know, immersive finance courses uh, for people like me. Uh, and I registered for it. Something came up. I got sick. Something happened. I couldn't make it. So uh, Darden floated me the credits like for one year, for two years, and it was getting a little ridiculous. And so a woman I work with uh, actually had seen that there was a servant leadership course that was being offered uh, that I would love. So I went to it. And my first day servant leadership course on the grounds there, and I'm in one of the classrooms, you actually have the Darden professors that are teaching it. And I instantly realized three things. One, I'm a lawyer, train like a lawyer, think like a lawyer. Secondly, the servant leadership stuff is core to who I am. My life has been an independent study in it. I love it. This is great. But what I really want, if I'm going to stay inside a corporation like this, uh, at that point, I've been on the leadership team for four years, is I need to know how companies work. Uh, you know, Despite my level, if I was honest with myself, I didn't understand the mechanics of so much of what we were and how we work as a company. So I think that day, I actually reached out to you. I mean, the end of my very first day at the executive program, reached out to you. It was, I think, mid-May, like, can I still get in potentially? Uh, but it was just, and it was lots of things. It was, it was the desire to have the the education, and as importantly, it was Darden. And I have to be honest, I mean, it really was experiencing Darden in the little way that I did, and for the well, honestly, more than any other institution I've ever been part of, feeling like it was already home. I mean, it was like this is, these are my people. This is a church I want to worship in. I mean, it was sort of that instant uh, of realization of wanting to be at Darden. What do you think it was about uh, the Darden experience that just uh, spoke to you so powerfully? I, I think there is a uh, a clarity about who the school is in terms of its commitment to academic academic excellence, coupled with a level of integrity and civic leadership 
And a notion that, you know, you can do good and do well, and that those things are not uh, intention. And so the amount of focus that is uh, placed on the whole person and uh, educating and learning on all the things that we need to do to be strong leaders in the business community, to me, it just, it was so clear. And then, and, and, and who's drawn to that? Because that, that's not everybody's thing. And if that is your thing, if being a decent human, as well as being a successful business person is your thing, oh my gosh, like who then comes and works at Darden? Who teaches at Darden? The students that it brings, it becomes a community of um, diverse, incredibly diverse, but at least like-minded in terms of that being a priority or part of who you are. All right, so you come to Darden, you're a brand new executive MBA student, and here you are, as noted, you're in quarter three. What's been the adjustment to being back in school, to be in an MBA program? What would you highlight? Um, all right, so I, all right, to be honest, it's like, for anyone that has kids, it's for me, it was like the kid experience. And look, some of it was twins, so let me you know caveat it with that. It is more work than I thought, and it is more rewarding than I could have ever imagined. So I had high hopes. I had very high expectations. It has been so much more rewarding than I could have ever dreamed of uh, and more work. So uh, so, so a lot of the adjustment was, and look, if someone had said, there are schools that you could go to where the hardest thing that you're going to do is get in, right? And so there are schools like that. Darden is not that. You know, the hardest thing at Darden is not getting in. Um, so you work and you, know, you got to be up for the work and and I love it. I mean, I, I, just, I joke about accounting and finance. I love them. Like I never thought I would have loved them, but it, it's, uh, so the adjustment is just, you know, look at 53, you know, I'd sort of settle into, you know, a certain life and to be kind of back in the studies and, you know, just having to kind of, you know, make the time day in, day out. And everyone says it just, you don't let stuff slide. I just focus on school a few hours a day, every day. Fine. Right. Um, but it's trying to find out of kind of an existing life those few hours. Um, but then, oh, my gosh, the world that it opens up you to is just incredible. Um, and that's why I say, I mean, I really do believe it is so much more rewarding than I could have ever dreamed of. And I, I am getting more out of it in ways that I never anticipated. Are you surprised that you enjoy accounting and finance? I'm shocked. I'm shocked. I mean, like, I just, you know, these are things I dreaded. And, uh, I, no, like no offense to anyone that doesn't, but I just I never thought like I was that person, but I am that person. And I think part of it is, you know, the the level of instruction is just unbelievable. I mean, I just I think our instructors get the ratings they do. They earn it. I mean, we have I think we have the best instructors in the country and it shows because there is like there's an intuitive piece to both accounting and finance that you teach the intuitive and then you know, and and you try to make sure you understand that. And then you do the technical on top of it. So it's not just the technical, it's not the mechanics. Sure, there's that. And we and you have to learn those, but it's as much also about the intuitive and understanding it from a strategic standpoint. And I think that's what I really am drawn to it's, and, and, and why I get so much satisfaction out of it. I appreciate your pointing out the emphasis on in, intuiting uh, to a to a particular decision that that's something that I hear, particularly from the faculty in, in those uh, more quant driven courses, right? Because people get real hung up on the numbers, but for leaders, for managers, which is really where our executive MBA students are, that intuition, that, that judgment, uh, that's a key piece. 
Now, it's, it, it, it is critical. And being able to kind of ha- exercise that and learn that. Yeah. I mean, because again, the technical stuff, it was sort of like law. You know, I knew more about the law the day that I took the bar than I will ever know the rest of my life because you learn all the technical, right? But what you're left with with the law is a way to think critically. And the same that I think what you're describing is, again, we learn the technical piece and, you know, right, the full honesty, I've probably forgotten almost all the technical stuff I learned in accounting one um, that I now have to relearn to take the accounting two exam this week. Uh, but it's that intuitive piece that sort of sticks with you, right? And and that I think is what what is empowering, and I think is is a lot of fun, even for folks that you know aren't necessarily drawn to it. So, what's been? Are there other things that have been surprising to you about your experience thus far? I mean, it sounds like enjoying accounting and finance probably not something that you set out down this road expecting to, to find, but other things uh, that you might yeah. highlight. Sure, I think honestly, the single biggest surprise. Um, for me had been um, the the other students. And I'm going to use the word that everyone talks about the network. So I think is a lot of folks who probably had you know gotten to this decision or listening to this had thought about is the network that you create. And that's the word I'd heard that, you know, this network that you're going to create. And I, you know, it's it's my own issue. I had sort of put network as a bit of a pejorative and something that's a little self-serving. And, you know, it's a, I, you know, I was like, that's fine. That's great. I'm really looking forward to um, it kind of just being a part of this this group and that the the caliber of my classmates the um, I, I just I, ha- I had not in any way understood how important that is and what that means for the experience um, and what I mean is I said I knew that a certain person was drawn to this but oh my gosh I am in a class with 130 people that are just some of the most exceptional, interesting people I've ever met in my life. And to be in a learning environment with them, spent as part of the learning um, or leadership um, on grounds week. Again, it was like a highlight of my life. I mean, these are like, because again, you're in, you're instantly with and getting to know um, just people that I would have never ever interacted with. And now, I mean, like talk about fast friends. So that I had completely missed the importance of um, and how important it is to my experience in the program is, is, is my classmates. And I have to say, I mean, again, 130 of the most impressive people I've ever met. Well, I joke all the time. I mean, like you learn about imposter complex and a variety of other things that we have. Like, no, I'm just an imposter. I joke it all the time. Like, oh, my gosh, I like I faked. I got past you. I faked my way in here because these people are unbelievable. I mean, just incredible folks. It is a great group of people. I mean, I think that's one of the real fantastic things about being in an executive MBA program, being in this executive MBA program is you're pulled together with 135 other people who've all decided, I've got a busy life. I've got a lot going on at work, but I want to take time to grow and to develop as as a person, uh, but also professionally. I mean, how do you find 135 people in the world all on that sort of same journey together? Right. Um well, in terms of how was that like, or because you did the magic of finance, so I mean, you can right. Well, it's it's hard to find people like that in the world. You might know a, a person or two, but they but, have this concentration. Yeah, and I do think that, and I do think to your point of there is what distinguishes, I think, the executive program potentially for some others is that again, it's just probably you know we've been out a little bit longer, we've worked we worked a little bit longer, but again, and, and we folks coming from all over the world, right? Classmate coming in from Indonesia every month. That's right. The classmate coming in from Indonesia every month, um, because I do think it is 
all over the country. It, it, uh, it's, uh, it's amazing. I mean, it's like, again, it is a highlight for me and one that I had never saw coming. Um, but, and then, and you realize how important we are to each other in terms of where this journey goes for all of us. And, uh, and the resource that we've instantly become to each other and making connections and supporting each other with, you know, already different uh, job opportunities. And I mean, it's instant. And so you're instantly with this community that, again, I just I had not appreciated how active we would be in each other's journey um, and what that means for you. Tell me about your learning team. Um, well, in some ways, like, I think a great microcosm of the class, like uh, incredibly diverse we are, you know, kind of all over the country. Um, you know, I'm not the oldest uh, at 53. And, uh, you know, we have folks that are the other end of this with, uh, uh, you know, having their first baby, right? So Jack, uh, you know, one of the folks on our team, uh, he and his wife are expecting their first uh, down in Florida. Um, former military, current military, other folks at big companies. I mean, all within a six-person team. And, um and, you know, and, and I think it's, it's weird because it's, we call each other fam. So we call each other like the family. Well, we always text or email each other like, Hey fam. So we call each other family. And that's what it, it really feels like because it's not friendship. I mean, it's, and it's, and it's weird because it's not like my law school classmates. We really do treat each other like family and sell each other's personal um, milestones. Uh, you know, Rob has two young ones. The first two crawled for the first time and we're all studying together and, you know, take the moment to celebrate you know, uh, the first crawl. And uh, so it, it does become, and we act like a family. And that's why it's, it's a bit of a microcosm of the broader group, because that's just the six of us. But the whole 130, 135 feels like that. I mean, it talk about, a, I mean, it really, you don't lose that on scale. There's that intimacy and that, you know, level of personal care, even on scale. So, when you look at where you were when you started the program to to where you are now, uh, what do you what do you see as the impact of the program thus far? I know it's still early early days. Yeah, but uh, I've heard this before. I've now lived it. It's uh, what I've loved is the amount that I'm able to instantly apply in my day job. So it's I had thought again, like you go through the course and years later you'll apply these things. I find that. Um, I am every week being able to take learnings uh, from the program and instantly apply it into my my day job. And I'm not the only one. We talk about it all the time, how often that happens. And, you know, and again, I'm the guy that leads diversity, equity, inclusion. So I'm not in finance. I'm not in accounting. Um, So a lot of my applications tend to be around uh, leadership uh, and strategy. uh, But even the ability to kind of take some of those concepts from accounting and finance uh, and the quantitative classes and begin to understand my organization and business differently and my role in it. Uh, so in terms of where I am now, I, again, I I thought it's like, you know, after two years, you're finally in a position to, you know, begin to apply and leverage. And no, I mean, it's, it's sort of like from day one, you find yourself uh, very differently positioned against no matter where you are and what you're doing and able to kind of practice and apply constantly as you go, uh, which feels fantastic, right? I mean, it's not like, oh, you wait, you know, you wait, you graduate, you apply. Nope. You know, you finish your first session and wow. All right. Yeah, that's certainly a way that I had not thought about doing this. And 
you take it back no, what, no matter what you're doing in your organization and try it out. What's it been like to learn in business school through the case method? Of course, law school famously has a case method. Um, I'm curious to hear your, your thoughts about this. Yeah. Right, so it's, it's funny because you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I will never forget, you know, first day in, uh, it, was a, it was an environmental law class, my first law class. You read the case, you come in, someone, you know, who's going to brief the case? Someone raise their hand. And the, uh, the classmate starts going, she doesn't get five words in and the professor cuts her off and is like, well, why is that important? And then she has to explain and she tries to finish the sentence because why is that important? And, you know, it was the most painful, like 20, 30 minutes to get through because he just, she never got through, you know, like eight facts without her kind of pulling it apart because in law, so much of what you're forced to do is think critically and incredibly precisely about, you know, because a comma matters and a word matters. And so the, it really, it teaches you a level of precision uh, and thinking critically around different concepts. So in all candor, I showed up thinking like, maybe it was gonna be something like that. Prepping for a case that way versus prepping for the cases that we do is a very different thing. And so it did take me the first couple of quarters to finally, I think, appreciate what business school case method is versus law school, which is fundamentally different. You will get through, you know, your first five words. You got me to, it's, again, it's not the level of precision. It's, it is the concept. You have to know the facts, you have to be able to apply the facts, all those. But it's, I think now that I've finally gotten it and understand that I, I was definitely over preparing and preparing the wrong way for case method, um, I love it. Uh, because what it does is, it's, it, is it, forces, um, it forces us to get into the concepts and apply them ourselves uh, as opposed to just, you know, to be kind of told, you know, here's the framework, you, we build the framework, right? And so you're constantly as a group and then as individuals through the case um, kind of, solving it together uh, and in a way that is so much more supportive than what I was used to in law school um, and fun and inviting and exciting. It doesn't mean we don't disagree and argue. We absolutely do, but it tends to be amongst us and the teacher, the instructors just facilitates it, right? Where in law school, it's definitely, uh, you know, uh, a different dynamic. So it's, it, it is now that I'm finally there and I have to, I have to own that it took me a couple quarters to get there. I'm loving it because I was struggling to kind of get the right level of prep and how to think about it and what's expected. Um, but yeah, I'm there. That's all part of the journey for Darden students, whether they went to law school or not. It's just to figure out what class preparation or what it looks like to be actually prepared for class. So what does your class prep look like now? Uh, tell us tell us your process. Yeah. So so for me, I, I do like to start a little further out and um I like one note is my biggest friend, uh, you know, and I, I tend to do, you know, you may have a, a textbook reading or articles ahead of time. I should do the foundational readings first, get the concepts, understand them, spend some time with them and then go to the case. And then you kind of read the case again, it will capture, begin to bring to life some of the issues that you've identified. Um, and, you know, highlight, take notes on the side, think about it. And you will usually then right before class, read the case again is a way just to kind of refresh myself on what it is. You usually have a couple of questions that you're asked to kind of think through and answer. Um, and again, I don't, but again, it's like, these are a few sentences, not like a page answer. So you kind of think through it. So what would I say? Why would I say that? And um, and that's it. So it's, I'd say I'm a slower reader. I've done that. So I tend to, you know, take for, a regular class, it's usually a couple hours of prep. 
um, you know, for me, uh, being a little bit on the slower side, I know their classmates that do it much, much faster. And, um, and the other piece that you have is particularly when you get on grounds is your learning team and being able to leverage your learning team. And what that means is when you have 12 classes that you're coming into, you can't do what I just described for every one of them and retain it. So you just divide, conquer, you know, I would spend more time on the one case or two cases that I have accountability for, do better notes so that everyone can have them do the analysis. Um, and then we hop on a call and just walk each other through what we didn't answer questions. So I do think a solid learning team becomes critical, particularly for the on-grounds part of it. Well, what are you looking forward to in, in the months ahead, Michael? Um, well, so most immediately is going to Spain next week as part of the first global residency. So um, I'm looking forward to that, you know, for eight different reasons. Um, but it's going to be a blast. We've got eight, 15 of us that are, again, these are the first global residencies for our for our class. Uh, a group is going to Morocco, a group going to Spain. So looking forward to that. Um, the program, the being with the other 14 folks. Um, I just, I'm, it's a whole new chapter in kind of the Darden journey uh, that, you know, uh, super excited about. So uh, to get there, I'm looking forward to being done with third quarter exams, all of which are still in front of me. Um, and then I think, you know, it's, it's, this is what is again, almost impossible to get my mind around is that we come back, dive into quarter four, you know, and we're really starting to crank through kind of the core classes and all of a sudden, you know, on the horizon become electives. And what I struggle with is, as opposed to honing in and feeling like there are fewer things that I'm going to be taking in the months ahead, I feel like there's more and more, you know, every time I meet an instructor, I'm like, oh my God, I have to take an elective with them every time. And, you know, and so I, I, I am struggling with the the freedom that's about to, you know, come our way as we get through core and are able to go ahead and begin to get into the electives. Um, but yeah, and I, and I think the thing that folks had advised and is starting to happen is by this moment right now, third quarter in, you're kind of, you know, past January into February, you really do get your, um, I guess you're, you get your sea legs under you, where you begin to know how much you need to prepare, what's expected when you're in class, what are exams going to be like? You know, so the so you really begin to know because you've had enough time to kind of get through it, how to do this and how to do it well. And so that confidence, you know, having kind of this anxiety that I'm going to fail out of business school behind me. And like, we all have it. I have it. I, I mean, every exam I've taken, I've thought to myself, I could have just failed that. Um, I've done fine. I haven't. But I think all of us have this sense that you know, like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm like one bad exam away from this thing unraveling. I think you get to this point and you realize you've got this right. You belong here. You know what you're doing, and I think the the, the ability to enjoy it even more without that anxiety that somehow it's going to unravel in any moment, uh, you know, kind of becomes a thing of the past. How did you pick Spain uh, for a global residency? Um, well, so Lottie, who uh, oversees the program, she's such a good job. She she's again, incredible at what she does. And, uh, you know, it, the part of it is that um, I'm just, I'm in the executive program. If you want to do a global residency, it means that you would do three more of these things. You would do four of them total. And so part of doing Spain was to try this out. And if I love it so much and decide that I have to do a global residency, I'd be positioned then to go ahead and pick up um, another global residency at each of the other uh, times. So it was it was that. Uh, and then coupled with the fact that, um, you know, uh, longer term aspirationally, I'd potentially love to 
um, be on the operation side, potentially with an international business and where that would potentially be more likely than anywhere else is Europe. Um, so it's just getting experience in kind of Europe and better understanding the market, you know, for that. I appreciate your point around sort of the savvy scheduling, traveling in the first uh, global travel period for an IMBA format student who at least is curious about possibly exploring becoming a GIMBA student. Uh, for our listeners, of course, you're admitted, you choose your format at the time of accepting your offer. There is opportunity as, as we move towards the start of school to, to change your mind. That yep. always happens. We have some people uh, move from Imba to Gimba and, and vice versa. And then, you know, post-matriculation, once you start school, there is also an opportunity for Imba students uh, to travel four times on these four global residencies, become a Gimba student. Uh, for a Gimba student who finds that they can't travel four times to shift to Imba, uh, that happens absolutely. But if you're the EMBA student who is thinking about GIMBA, you have to travel in the first travel period like Michael is talking about here. So um, there's two trips going right now, right? Spain and Morocco, uh, Morocco is the other right. trip. Okay. Yeah. And I think, and, and I love, I mean, we have 15, I think there may be as many as 40 or 45 to Morocco. So much bigger group. And again, and I think the programs are just that way, right? Uh, lots of great international destinations to choose from. Uh, but having heard from, again, the 23s and others that have done these, it just, like, there are too many highlights. The problem with this program is there's too many highlights to count. It is another highlight that, again, people just really take a lot out of. Well, uh, Michael, uh, any final thoughts? Um, any advice for our listeners? Yeah, like, I, I think... Um, Look, if you're if they're still listening, it shows that there's a level of interest in Darden uh, that I think shows that there's something there, right? That there's something about everything that they've read or heard so far that has piqued their interest that they they want to know more. Uh, and I, I think you know I had the benefit of the mini immersion because of that executive ed program that I did. My advice would be to get to Charlottesville. I, I think that you know. These programs, you know, on the website, on paper can look a certain way. And um, I think to experience and to walk into these those buildings and to meet you in person, to see the team, um, you know, the folks that we hosted this weekend when they came to uh, um, to our on grounds and were able to sit in classes. I can't more highly recommend getting in person and seeing for yourself. Uh, right. People have friends that went through the program. People have friends that went through different programs and everyone's got their point of view. I just think people experiencing it themselves. And I think the best way to do it is to be in person uh, with those that comprise this program in some ways is the surest way that to help make that decision. Um, and again, and it may not be for everyone, which is great. But for those, what this is the right fit. Um, I think you sort of know right away Um in the same way that I did. So that would be my encouraging is just, uh, if you're still listening, is to sort of take the time, um, come sit in our class, get to Charlottesville, uh, see the program um, for yourself. I think it goes a long way. Well, Michael, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, for sharing your story, for answering all of my questions and, and good luck on, on your exams, Q3 exams and uh, safe travels to Spain. Uh, I'm so envious of, you know, when these tra travel periods roll around. I mean, we've got executive MBA students going to Spain, Morocco. There's also a second year group going to Vietnam, which is, uh, I think, the first time uh, for, for that one for our executive MBA program. Morocco is also uh, a fairly new location. Spain, Spain as well. I mean, to your point, there's so many great places to go. So thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Uh, Brett, thank you. It's great talking with you. 
And that was my interview with Michael Thorne Beglin, a first-year student in our Executive MBA class of 2024. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, requests, anything you'd like for us to cover here on the podcast, we're all ears. You can reach that exec, that's E-X-E-C, MBA at darden.virginia.edu. Until next time, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.